We are continuing our sermon series in Mark. Uh, I had considered taking a break for one Sunday and addressing the topics of life, uh, death, life after death, uh, heaven. My, my reason for considering this is we've lost a lot of friends and loved ones in our church, and we have a number who have been given just days to live. Um, but I read ahead in Mark at the next passage as I was debating this in my mind, and guess what the next topic is in our passage? It's death and life after death and heaven. So therefore, we're going to just continue our sermon series in Mark. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, and please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read verses 18 through 27, and this is the very inspired Word of God. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would give us understanding this morning of this passage. We don't want to be like the Sadducees who were told by Jesus they were quite wrong. Uh, I pray that you'll use this passage to not only give us a right understanding, but give us a right understanding so that we might face life faithfully and we might face death faithfully. And I want to pray especially for those who have lost loved ones recently, those who are struggling with this, those who are are losing loved ones now. I pray this, this passage, this, this time together would be an, a special encouragement to them. And I pray you'll use it to equip all of us to face life well and to be faithful in death also. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So our passage begins in verse 18 where it says, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection and they asked him a question. Now, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you've noticed this pattern. Uh, ever since Jesus came in to Jerusalem, there have been these groups that have gone to Him asking these difficult questions. Their goal is to try to trap Him. And uh, we see, we've seen the wisdom of Jesus in how He handles these different groups, these different questions. And now we're told there's a group of Sadducees who go to Him with their, their question. Their goal is to trip Him up. Who were the Sadducees? In a lot of ways, they were similar to the Pharisees, a smaller group of, of religious leaders. Uh, but they were different from the Pharisees in some key ways. One is mentioned in our, our passage here, verse 18. They don't believe in the resurrection. The historian Josephus tells us they were, they were annihilationists. They believed that at death, your, your body ceased to exist, and so does your soul. And so they, this was one of their key teachings that distinguished them. A second key distinguishing belief of this group is they only held to the authority of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the, the five books that, that we believe were written by Moses. 
And so notice they appealed to Moses, verse 19, and, and the first five books, they appealed to him leading up to their question. Look at verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So they reference this law, which is in the Old Testament. It's found in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. The law states if there are two brothers and one of them is married and, and he dies and has no son, that the, the wife is to marry the, the brother-in-law. And I know that sounds really odd to us, but there are some reasons for it. We won't get into them now. But there were also some provisions in place. They, there were some ways for them to not get married if they didn't want to. And in particular, there's a provision if, if the woman wants to get married to the brother-in-law and the brother-in-law doesn't want to marry her, she can take him. This is Deuteronomy 25.10. She can take him out to the, 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 the elders at the front gate and she can remove his sandal and spit in his face. Literally. Deuteronomy 25.10. Look it up after the service if you don't believe me. Spit in his face and his house will therefore be referred to as the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Right? Interesting that the law of God provides some way for people to be shamed. Right? As a way of trying to Dis- discourage uh, unfaithfulness to the law. Right? But, but they appealed to this law in order to, to bring up their hypothetical scenario. So they appeal to the law. The law is the brother-in-law is supposed to marry the wife. They say, okay, here's the situation. Here's the hypothetical. You have a woman who marries a man. He dies. She marries his brother. He dies. Marries his brother. It, and so forth and so on. Seven brothers. So she's been married to seven different brothers None of them have children. They all die. The woman dies. And then here's the question, right? That's the crazy, extreme, hypothetical scenario. Now here's the question. Verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now the argument they're using is what is called reductio ad absurdum. It's a common type of argument to use. You try to prove something is true, by, by showing someone that, that if, if what they believe is true, then how absurd it would be. In other words, uh, you try to prove someone is false and what they're claiming to be is false by saying, if what you're saying is true, then that would mean this, this, and that. And that can't possibly be the case because that's absurd. So therefore, your claim can't be true. So the, the Sadducees are saying, you can't be right about this idea of a future resurrection because there, there was this future resurrection I mean, how would these kinds of things get sorted out like a man married to seven different women? Like, that's just not possible. Right? You use this argument anytime your kids come to you and say, Mom, Dad, can I please do this? And you say no. And they say, but everybody's doing it. Right? All of my friends are doing it. All their parents are letting them do it. And what do you say? Well, if all of your friends jumped off a bridge, would you do that too? You're using the same type of, of argument, the same type of reason, Right? In other words, you're saying, if, if we take your argument and say we ought to do whatever our friends do and whatever their parents let them do, and we ought to do it, whatever it is, that could lead you to doing something as foolish as jumping off a bridge. So therefore, your, your claim, your, your logic, I ought to be able to do this because all my friends are doing it, is clearly you know, false. And that's what these guys are trying to do. They're trying to use this extreme hypothetical situation to show just how ridiculous this idea of resurrection is. If there's such thing as resurrection, how in the world could these kinds of situations possibly get sorted out? Like people being married to multiple people. So Jesus responds in verse 24. Jesus said to them, 
Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? First, I just think it's great that Jesus explicitly tells them, you guys are wrong. And the Greek word that's used there is the word planao, where we get our word planet. It's like, you guys are out there. You know, you're, you're wrong. And the, the passage ends in verse 27, you are quite wrong. We mentioned last week, sometimes Jesus gives very nuanced answers. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, to God what belongs to God. It's kind of nuanced. There's wisdom in that. But sometimes Jesus just says, that's foolish. You're wrong. And that's what He does here. And He calls them out for two errors. Verse 24, you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know the Bible, which would have been very insulting to them. You don't know the Bible, and I'm about to correct you on it. Right? And then number two, you don't know the power of God. Like You claim to believe in the first five books of the Bible, which contain this incredible account of creation where God creates everything that exists from nothing, ex nihilo, from nothing. And He just speaks it into existence and does it over six days. You're telling me that God who can do that can't sort out your little hypothetical situation about a man who's been married to seven different women or a woman who's been married to seven different brothers? Right? He's, he's all-powerful. Don't, don't let your little mind put limits on Him in terms of what He's capable of and what He can do. Don't let that prevent you from believing in resurrection. Right? And by the way, that's a good, it's a good first principle to always keep in mind. He's God and I'm not. And uh, there's no limit to who He is and what He can do. He is who He is. And any limits that He has, He has given to Himself by committing Himself to do certain things. Any limits that he has, they're limits that result as a, as, as a result of his character, who he is. For example, some people will say, well, if God can do anything, can he create a rock big enough to crush himself? And of course, the answer is, that's foolish. <laughs> right? uh, he can't do something that goes against his character. He can't do something that goes against his will. He wills to live. Of course, he can't create a rock big enough to kill himself. Right? That's just foolish. And so, are there limits? Of course. But God puts the limits on Himself, and we should not put the limits on Him. And that's the problem with the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees that Jesus is calling them out. You're putting limits on Him. Do you not know the power of God? Look at verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Notice Jesus says, when they rise from the dead. Not if. Not if you guys are right. And I'm wrong, but you guys are wrong, and I'm right. When they rise, it's going to happen. There's going to be a resurrection. You're, you're, you're wrong about this. When they rise from the dead, it, it, it's going to be different than what you think. They're not going to marry or be given in marriage. They're not going to be married. They're going to be like the angels. We're going to become like the angels. Now, I want you to notice what he's saying. He's not saying we will become angels. He didn't say that. That's kind of more the theology of Hallmark. Right? You die and you go to heaven and you become an angel. The Bible does not teach that at all. Uh, angels are spirit beings. We are spirit and physical beings. And one day the Bible teaches in the resurrection we will be spiritual and physical people reunited, body and spirit reunited in the flesh. We will not be angels. So what then does he mean when he says we will be like angels? And I think the answer is we will be like angels in that we will not procreate. Because in Luke's Gospel, you look at Luke's Gospel, he says we will not procreate because we will not need to because there will be no death. There will be no death, therefore there will be no need for procreation. Therefore, in this sense, 
We will be like angels. Uh, I know this raises a lot of questions, and I'm actually going to come back here in a little bit and try to raise and address some of those questions, but for now, let's keep going in the text. Verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So Jesus references the Old Testament, appeals to the Old Testament. Have you not read? The Old Testament speaks about a future resurrection. Now there are a number of places that Jesus could have gone in the Old Testament to talk about the reality of a future resurrection. One classic example is in Job, Job 19, verses 25 and 26, where Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. I know one day He'll return. He'll stand on the earth. And Job says, I know I will see Him in the flesh even after I die in the flesh. In other words, I will die, my flesh will go into the ground, but I know I will see Him, physically see Him with my eyes, in my flesh, I will see my Redeemer. What's He talking about? Future resurrection. And there's a ton of examples we could point to, and Jesus could have pointed to, but guess what Jesus chooses to appeal to when He points to the Old Testament? He chooses to appeal to Moses in the first five books of the Bible. He could have taken them on with their issue of the the authority of which books are authoritative. He could have addressed that issue. But it's almost like he says, you know what? I'm going to show you from the Old Testament that there is such thing as resurrection, and I'm going to use the books that you appeal to for your authority. So he says, let's, let's go to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Right? And in that, in that passage, we have God saying to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Now, I want to talk about a couple of ways that this sort of answers the question, and, and solve the problem about a future resurrection. We'll look at one here in a little bit. For now, I just want to focus on the fact that God says to Abraham, uh, God says to Moses, in, after Abraham has come and gone, after Isaac has come and gone, after Jacob has come and gone, He says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham. Not, I was back when Abraham was alive. But I am. He, he, he's alive in some sense. He's, he's dead but he's not annihilated. He hasn't ceased to exist in every way possible. I am the God of Abraham. Verse 27. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So you are quite wrong. You're wrong to think of Abraham as being annihilated, Jesus is saying. There's a sense in which Abraham's alive. He's dead, but there's a sense in which he's alive because God says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And I think that should be an encouragement to us, those of us who have lost loved ones, who are in Christ. He is the God, not of the dead, but of the living. And uh, there's a sense in which when we've lost loved ones in Christ, there's a sense in which they are alive. And He is the God of them too. Now, what I want to do is ask and seek to answer four questions that I think are naturally raised in your minds. And and I admit that the text doesn't necessarily explicitly address all of them, but I just think they're too burning and that we just need to address them. And I think it'd be helpful. We don't do this on most Sundays, but we're going to do it today. So here are four questions that I think naturally arise in our minds from a passage like this that I'm going to try to raise and then try to answer. First of all, how can heaven be good 
if there is no marriage. We're told heaven is wonderful. We're told heaven is good. We, we are people who are the people of marriage. We're the pro-family, pro-marriage people, right? So how can heaven be so wonderful and so good if there's no marriage? If you're wrestling with that question, I'm really glad. That means you have a high view of marriage. That means you're, you, you experience joy in your marriage. And that's a great thing. If you're sort of relieved to hear that there's not marriage in heaven, <laughs> that's a little bit of a problem. Right? If you have a high view of marriage, it probably indicates one of two things. You either have a really good marriage, and that's a great thing, or you've had a really good marriage, and that's a great thing. Or you're single, and you just have this really high view of marriage one day, and you're looking forward to that one day. Either one of those is, is, is good, wonderful. If you're asking this question, you know, how, how could there be no marriage in heaven and heaven still be wonderful? It's, there, I'm guessing that there's two issues, one of two issues that's really the concern for you. Either you're really concerned about the companionship. Like, this is my companion. How could I do life without her? How could I do life without him? You know, you're, you're concerned about the companion piece or you're concerned about the pleasure piece, right? How could heaven be wonderful if there's no pleasure? And so I'm going to address the pleasure concern first and I'm going to quote a Puritan. I thought, if I'm going to talk about pleasure and I'm quoting a Puritan, I should be fine, right? So here's a quote from Jonathan Edwards speaking about this issue of pleasure in heaven. In heaven, the glorified spiritual bodies of the saints shall be filled with pleasures of the most exquisite kind that such refined bodies are capable of. The sweetness and pleasure that shall be in the mind shall put the spirits of the body into such a motion as shall cause a sweet sensation through the body, infinitely excelling any sensual pleasure here. That sounds kind of like a Puritan, doesn't it? Right? Good quote, helpful quote from Jonathan Edwards. Uh, next, I want to address the question of the, the companionship. And this is a quote from Danny Aiken uh, talking about the, the person who's concerned. Uh, 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 my, my husband, my spouse, my wife is such a close friend. How, how could I enjoy heaven without her it, it, being married to her? Uh, so Danny Aiken says it like this. No one will be disappointed in any way when they get to heaven. No one will be deprived of one thing that is necessary for maximum joy, optimal happiness, and complete satisfaction. Our relationship with Jesus and with all our brothers and sisters will be so intense and so filled with love and affection that all earthly marital bliss will seem shallow and small in comparison. Now let's ask a second question. Why does God give us marriage if it ceases to exist? Why does God give us marriage here on earth and call it good and call it sacred and say, I want you to protect it and defend it and value it? Why does He do that if it doesn't last forever? If it's temporary? Right? When I marry a couple, when I officiate the wedding of a couple, I always require that they go through premarital counseling with me. We go through a certain book. And in that book, it talks about three purposes of marriage. And I want to mention them briefly. They all start with the letter M. Uh, first of all, first purpose of marriage is to mutually complete one another. Genesis 2.18 says, it was not good for the man to be alone. So God gave him a helper. God gave him Eve. Right? So marriage exists so that we might mutually complete one another. Well, we've already pointed out, in heaven, that won't be necessary. We won't be incomplete. We will not need one person to complete us the way that we do here. A second 
purpose of, of marriage is to multiply a godly legacy. God gave us marriage in order to procreate and fill the earth. In fact, Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. One of the major purposes of marriage is to have children. Right? And that, that is not going to be necessary in heaven. There will be no death. There will be no procreation. Third purpose of marriage is to mirror God's image. There's something about the male and the female together that, that image God in a way that the individual can't. And that, that image, that mirroring of God as the male and the female, Ephesians 5.32 tells us that relationship is mysteriously pointing forward to the relationship between Christ and the church. It's mysteriously pointing to the gospel. So this is incredible. Before the fall, God gave us marriage, knowing that there would be a fall, knowing that marriage, one man and one woman, would be an, a, a picture of the gospel of what God was going to do to redeem the sinful, broken world. That's incredible to think about. Before the fall, God knew there would be a fall. God gave us marriage, therefore, and one of the major purposes of marriage was to be a mirror, to mirror for thousands of years what God would do through Christ in sending His Son to come and redeem a people and, be, and redeem a bride for His glory. Well, in heaven, there's not going to be a need for marriage to mirror this this because we will be with the bridegroom. right? We're not going to need that, that reminder. We're not going to need that picture. We're going to be with Christ, which is what the mirror is pointing forward to. And so I don't think this reality should cause us to have a lower view of marriage. I think it should cause us to have a higher view of marriage. We are here on earth in our marriages to be a mirror for the world of what the gospel looks like and what the relationship between Christ and His church looks like. You know, God forbid that we would have a lower view of marriage and not a higher view of marriage as a result of this. Third question. Will we recognize our loved ones in heaven? So if we're not married, will I recognize my spouse? You know, will we walk up and say, you seem awfully familiar to me. <laughs> what time period were you in? Oh, early 13th century? Okay, never mind, you know. I don't think it's going to be like that. I want to admit we're getting into a little bit of conjecture here, right? And I want to be really cautious about conjecture when it comes to anything. I want to stand on God's Word. But I do think there are some texts and some principles that, that, that we can look to and use to see that I, I do think that there will be relationships in heaven. Uh, for example, uh, David referring to his son, his infant son who died. David says, 2 Samuel twelve twenty three. but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David says, he's not coming back to me, but I'm going to him. And I think implied in that is I'm going to him, to, to be with him. You know, I'll be reunited with him, I think is the implication. I don't think heaven is going to be this eternally blissful state of us just having equal relationships with all people. This is not the way God created us. That's not, that doesn't reflect anything of what life is like here. And there will be a lot of continuity between life here and there. There will be a lot of discontinuity, but a lot of continuity. I think there will be special relationships. I think we will, I think we will know each other and know how we know each other. You, you, you are my parents. You are my children. I don't think that relationship will define us in heaven because we're taught we won't be married or given in marriage. 
But I think about 1 Thessalonians 4.13 where Paul is encouraging the believers who have lost loved ones. And he says, we don't grieve as others do who have no hope. We grieve, but we have hope. Why? I think, I think behind that hope is a hope that we'll be reunited. We'll be with them. It's not just a hope that they'll be in heaven. I think it's a hope they'll be in heaven, I will be with them, and we'll be reunited together. What exactly will that relationship look like? What exactly will those relationships look like? I don't know for sure. But I do believe we can have some degree of confidence that we will know one another and know why we know one another. And I believe that should encourage us to be especially faithful in our relationships with those we know and love, our close loved ones, to make sure we are sharing the gospel and fleshing out the gospel before them. And say, we, we want you to be there. I want to be there with you. I want you to be there with me. I think it's a very legitimate way to think and a very legitimate way to evangelize. I care about you. I love you. God's placed you in my life. I want to see you there. I want to spend eternity with you. Listen, listen to how Edward Donnelly says this. We cannot know less in heaven than we did on earth. And so we will recognize there those known to us here. That is surely comforting. For every good thing will be better in heaven than on earth. If God has given you a Christian husband or wife, parent or child, brother or friend, you can be sure that whatever the parameters of your future relationship with them may be, the friendship will be closer there than it is now. You will know them more intimately, love them more intensely, delight in them more fully. It is impossible that we should lose any good thing in that place where good abounds. We can look at Christians whom we love especially and praise God that we will continue to love them more and more forever and ever. I hope that's encouraging to you. And this brings us to the fourth question. How can we be confident that heaven is real? Because these, these truths that we're talking about, they sound so good and so wonderful. And the skeptic, the skeptic would look at us and say, you guys are just telling yourselves this to make yourselves feel better, to pacify the pain. How, how can we be confident that these truths aren't just here to pacify us, that we're not just telling each other this to kind of get through it. How can we be confident that these truths are real and that heaven is real and that we really are going to be there and we really are going to be there with our loved ones? I want to go back to the passage, back to verse 26, where God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I want us to consider, why does He mention these three guys in particular? Do these just happen to be three examples from Genesis of men who have died and he really could have used anybody else? I think there's something specific about the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. What is it about them in particular? And the answer is, these are the men that God went to personally and made promises to, covenantal promises. I will give you land. I will give you descendants. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. Through you, all the nations will be blessed. Do these promises that God made to these men just sort of cease when they die? Like, oh, they're dead. No more promise for them. They're dead. I think Jesus is, is highlighting the, the, the ridiculousness of that. When God makes a promise to Abraham, a huge promise, a deep promise, the promise doesn't end at Abraham's death. The promise continues and the promise will be fulfilled and there's a very real sense in which Abraham will experience the fulfillment of that promise. Right? I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Listen to how Sinclair Ferguson says it. 
God's covenant promise to save His people would not be of any significance if it were overcome and shattered by death. It would be a tawdry salvation which lasted only for this life. The New Testament tells us that the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are fulfilled in the person of Jesus and will one day be fully realized when Jesus returns and the dead are raised. The dead, those who are in Christ will be raised to be with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. And that includes Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that includes you and me who are in Christ. And by the way, this meal that He gives us is a sign of that new covenant. It's a sign, a reminder of God's faithfulness that He will finish what He started. That He loves us. Look at, look at what He did for us in Christ. Through His death, burial, and resurrection, He will not leave us as orphans. He will return for us, though we might die between now and then. Though our loved ones might die between now and then, He is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. They live, they are with Him now spiritually, and one day they will live even physically in the new heavens and the new earth, and we will be with them. And don't you want to make sure this morning that you can be confident when you leave here that you will be there that that will be a good day for you, that you will be alive with Christ, living in the new heavens and the new earth, reunited with those who, who, who were in Christ during this life. You can be, you can be confident by looking to Christ and trusting in Him and trusting that He is God's provision for you through His life, death, burial, resurrection. If you'll look to Jesus and believe on Him, you can be confident that when He returns, you will be raised to walk in newness of life and to experience the new heavens and the new earth and heaven and all of the good that comes with it. The pleasure, the comfort, the companionship, the, the being complete. Experiencing life the way life is supposed to be experienced. Are you frustrated today because life is frustrating to you? Is this world frustrating you like it is me? <laughs> right? Guess what? That longing you have for a, a world that's, that's like this, but yet is, just, is right. It, it's a real promise. It's a real hope. And you can experience it if you look to Christ and trust in Him. And, and this Lord's Supper, this meal that we take this morning, is a sign of God's covenantal faithfulness to us and what He's done for us in Christ. Fulfilling the promises that He made to all of God's people throughout all of history are seen in Christ through His life, death, burial, and resurrection. And as we take this meal this morning, we are saying something. First of all, we are saying we are sinners in need of what Christ did for us. We need His body broken, pictured by the bread. We need His blood poured out, pictured by the cup. And by taking this meal, we are saying we are trusting in Christ and Christ alone for our right standing with God. We are saying we believe we are right with our Creator because of Christ and Christ alone. And by taking this meal, we are saying we celebrate the fact that one day soon He will return and we will take this meal with Him. And the meal will be fulfilled and we will go on to live in the new heavens and the new earth, as the creatures that were created to be with Christ. So for these reasons, we ask that only believers who are in good standing with the New Testament church take this meal with us. If you're not trusting in Christ, we would ask you to consider, why not? What are you waiting for? Go to Him, believe on Him today. If you're not a member in good standing with the New Testament church, why not? What are you waiting for? It's Christ's bride. If you're committed to Christ, you've got to be committed to His church. This is for people who are trusting in Christ and who are in good standing of the New Testament church. Otherwise, we'd ask you to pass the elements. So for these reasons, I want to give you a few moments to pause, examine, confess, reflect, 
Make sure you can take this meal in a manner that's worthy. If you don't have the elements and you want them, you can go get them at the back of the room. We're going to spend a few moments in silence and prayer. If you want to go back and get that, you can. And then in a few moments, I will lead us from there. Let's bow our heads.